And we read this. You shall make an altar to burn incense on, and you shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its width. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay its top, its sides all around, and all its horns with pure gold. And you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. Two gold rings shall, um, you shall make for it under the molding on both sides. You shall place them on its two sides, and they shall be holders for the poles with which to bear it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense. Every morning when he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn the incense on it as a a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on it, or a burnt offering or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord." Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel from their number, and every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what every one of you among those who are numbered shall give, a half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel, as I'm sure you're all aware of, is 20 garaz. So therefore, a half shekel, 10. Half shekel shall be a sin offering, or an offering, I'm sorry, to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when you give an offering to the Lord. Now, if this is your first time here, you're like, I knew it. They were going to do this offering thing. Well, sit tight and decide for yourself to make an atonement for yourselves. And you shall take an atonement, you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and appoint to appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze, and with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. And Aaron and the sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. That tells me, you better do this. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. In case you didn't didn't get that. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also take for yourselves quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, that's 250 shekels, 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane, 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hint of olive oil. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. Now with it you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the, tab- of the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and the utensils, the altar of incense, 
the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the laver and its base. And you shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it. According to its composition, it's holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any on an outsider, shall be cut off from among his people. And the Lord said again to Moses, or said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stakte, and amicha, and galbanum, and pure frankincense, and with these sweet spices there shall be equal amounts of each. And you shall make of these an incense, a compound according to the art of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. And you shall bear, or sorry, beat some of it very fine, and put some of it before the testimony of the tabernacle of meeting, where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. But as for the incense which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves according to its composition. It shall be to you holy for the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. You pray with me, please. Lord, I just pray right now for those in this room and myself included. Lord, as you seek to speak to us in this time, Lord, I know that You have such a great love for us. I know you are so good, so wonderful. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you are drawing us close, making us more like you. I pray for that fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would just take your presence and be so evident and clear in this time now here among us. Lord God, I just pray that for every person here, you would speak to us individually as well as corporately. You know, God, every one of us. You know what we deal with. You know what we struggle with. You know what we celebrate. You know what we regret. And you know what we look forward to. So, Lord, I pray that your word would burst open and come alive and be so fun as we open it now. Minister to us profoundly. Address us where we need to be spoken to. God, have your way, I pray. Let this time be your time. As I surrender it to you, Lord, I just pray we would say, wow, what a great God. Take areas that are unclear and make them clear. Develop what you want to develop. And God, please don't leave us alone. Make us like you, we pray. In Jesus, in your name, amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your final say. Well, it's been quite an interesting trip, if you think of it. I mean, back in, num- in um, Exodus chapter 12, we left. We left Egypt. And it had been a three-month journey between there and the place we're at right now, which is Mount Sinai. But understand, back in Exodus chapter 3, when this whole thing started, when God called Moses, that's where Moses was. So this is not a place he hasn't seen. Exodus 3.12, when Moses was tending the sheep, that burning bush bush passage that whole area boy my lips they're like rented today i'll I'll grow into them listen it was god who called moses to be a deliverer to the people and he says in exodus 312 as a sign to this he says i will certainly be with you 
And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Back in Exodus 3, before the whole thing went down, Moses was on this mountain encountering God at a burning bush. Then from there, he will go into Egypt. There's that whole showdown with Yul Brynner, let my people go. I'm sorry, with Pharaoh. And then with that, the plagues. And then with that, Exodus 12. And we leave Egypt. Now, God had planned on delivering. He said he was come to, he'd come to deliver. Recognize deliverance is not removal. Removal is being pulled out of a place. Deliverance is being brought into another. That whole area from Exodus 12 to the, really the first six chapters of Joshua will be the delivery route if you think about it, but you're really not going to get to where God wants you to be until Joshua. In other words, the rest of the Torah, three and a half books of it, are going to be this time in between removing, being removed from Egypt, but getting to where God really put the address He stamped on your head when He picked you up. Please understand, Christianity is so much more than just being removed. And we can kind of get that idea because we're identified by what we don't do. When I used to drink and I used to kick puppies and slap nuns and I was a nasty person, but I don't do any of that anymore. What's well, like, well, great, well, what do you do? And a lot of times people will be like, I, I, I really don't know. I don't know what I do. I just know what I don't do. And we could be like that as Christians. We could be like the, the fact that we're so busy standing against things and we don't even know what we stand for anymore. And what happens is a world, I mean, that can be a very ugly and scary thing. Like, well, I know everything you hate, but I don't know anything you love. Like, well, I'll tell you what, I love God. And because I love God, I want to love you in a right way that you could be brought to Him and know Him. Well, during this particular pot, this time, it's going to take three months to get here where we're going to spend nearly a year at this place, Mount Sinai. During this time, the Red Sea will split open. All this Pharaoh's army will be drowned. A pillar of cloud by day and fire by night will lead us. Bitter water will be made sweet with the throwing in of a branch. Maybe you remember those things. The quail that will be given to us that will hover just at a good distance to get and eat. Bread will fall from heaven. Moses will smack a rock to give us water. Rivers of water that will gush out of it. The Amalekites will attack. If you remember Raphaim. That's where we meet Joshua as a soldier who comes in. Moses has to raise his hands to see that battle won. And we see all of that happen up to that point, and now we make it into Sinai. Here we are, and God says, as we finally get here, he goes, look it, I want to set you apart, and please hear me. All of this law stuff that God gives is not because God's on a trip to try to make your life more tedious. To be honest, it's the opposite. See, this is what God knows you could forget. He knows where you came from, and he knows where you are. He knows where you came from was kind of messed up. It was messed up enough that you kind of have to start to learn that there were things that are good to abandon. Things that you were like, I'm really familiar with this. He goes, just because you're familiar doesn't mean it's good. And just because it's familiar, it will be comfortable, but you could be comfortable in your uncomfort, if that makes sense. Comfort in your displeasure. Comfort in your torture. Because I'm used to getting beat up all day. Now imagine, that's the little kid that wakes up one day and all of a sudden became the size of Peter. But yesterday he was the size of, well, no one, he was, a, he was the size of Lorraine yesterday. And so for, so for three years he's been beat up every day. The next day he wakes up and he waits for everyone to beat him up. And it's weird because he doesn't, if he doesn't get beat up, it feels like it's a strange day to him. 
Because that's what he's used to. And it's almost like they'll get to a point where he'll expect or want someone to beat him up because it's what he knows. You can be like that too. And God says, look, I know where you came from. When we get to Leviticus, it's going to be unbelievable what God has to tell you not to do. And the reason I say that, it's like, really? Like anyone would do this? And God's like, yeah, actually, where you left, everybody did this. And that becomes the point. And there's a part of you that goes, wow, really? I mean, what was normal was sick and abominable to God. And God looks and he goes, look it, if that was normal, a little less of it looks good, but I want you completely from it. Do you hear the difference? It's like, okay, you're not dying of cancer anymore, but I don't want you to have any cancer in you. There's a difference here. Well, I just want a little cough, and I want to wake up with a little fatigue, and I just want to really not be able to do things a little bit less than it. Oh, and that guy's like, no, I would rather you thrive. But I want to warn you, the place I'm taking you is just as bad, if not worse. Because the world I am sending you into is so rough, I'm, depl- I'm actually evicting them right now. And I'm going to move you in in their place. And if they're going to be that bad, why in the world would you want to go and do that? So, case in point, Pip's checking out a new place. She's looking for new digs. She's like, you know, I need a new flat. So she kind of checks out some places, and there's this one place, and it's nicer than any other place, and it gets crazier because the owner says, and he's not a creep or anything weird like that, but he says, you know what, to be honest, all I'm looking for is a decent young lady to live in this place. I've already paid the price. All I'm looking for is somebody to tend to it. He goes, but let me warn you. Let me tell you what happened to the last people that lived here. They got comfortable because of that. They started tearing down the walls. They started kicking holes in the walls. They started breaking all the windows. And you could see her going, yeah, 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 that's bad. And he goes, yeah, and that's why I'm looking for somebody that's really, really different to live here. That would make sense, yeah. Now imagine, she gets the place, she moves in, and she starts to kick holes in the walls. She starts to break the windows down. Because she's like, well, after all, okay, they broke five windows, I'll only break four. That's not so bad, right? It's like, look at the warning was, the reason he wants a new occupant is because the old occupant really destroyed the place. You get that? Well, he's really setting us up for something, and you may not get it yet. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke that the, like an evil spirit driven from a man. By the way, the man he will call a house in that case. He says, so we're just going to use Chris. We'll pick on Chris for a second. Let's just say Chris was possessed. I, I really don't think that, but let's just say he was. And an evil spirit was driven from him. And you go, is that really still true? I'm like, yeah, um, that still happens. All you have to do is walk through Camden at night. You'll believe me. All right, so it's driven out. And it says, and then that, holy, that, that, that unholy spirit's all around looking for some other place. And it doesn't find any other place to go. So it kind of checks back out Chris. And it says, when it finds that that house is clean, swept, and in order. You think, well, that sounds good. Well, not to him. Does he will go and move back in, get seven worse than him, and I tell you, the condition of that house will be worse than it was before. You go, well, what would be better than a house swept clean? Well, a new occupant. That's the idea. You see, there was a day we were driven. Whether we were possessed or not, the bottom line is we were driven by the enemy of our souls that really led us to destroy ourselves. And when we gave our life to Christ, it was more than him trying to put your life in order. He came to live inside of you. He is the new occupant. The old occupant, in essence, came to destroy you. The new occupant came to give you life. There's the difference. 
And so this whole thing we're looking at is really a whole archetype of that whole situation. But it gets better than that. So here we are at Mount Sinai, and God starts laying down the law. And it's like things like, you know what? Honor your mother and father. Now that sounds really strange, but in a world, listen, the whole idea of it is, the, the fundamental application, can I say, is when they get older, take care of them. We live in a community, which, by the way, the older you get, the more obsolete you are. Who wants to get old? I mean, getting old means you're irrelevant. Getting old means you're, you're, you know, you're, you're unnecessary. You know, you're superfluous. Because now you're drawing from the system instead of contributing from it. Now, I don't agree with that, just so you know. But you know that's our culture. Because that's our culture, God says, don't you think it would be wise we started honoring older people? The problem is, some of those older people, when they were 15, were carrying signs that said, don't trust anyone over 35. Then they got 35. And I think they changed it, don't trust anyone until they're 40. You know that? Now, now, follow me, though. As God starts laying down those laws, all he's doing is going, the world you live in, I have a better world for you. Don't just try to, make, to try to shove me into your old world. I would rather pull you out and put you into my new world. And then he goes, now that we've gotten that clear, that that's to be left, the new place that I'm deploying you to is not a place that you're going to go and engage and influence, but you're not going to integrate into. He goes, now with that in mind, let's live together. In chapter 25 says, God, God says, make me a sanctuary. Make me a tabernacle that we could be together. Understand, this has been God's desire from the beginning. God's first dwelling place, well, that was Eden. And then man sinned, chose himself over God. And there was this entrance they were removed from. And there on the east side. And if you wondered about this, Adam is going to live 900 and some odd years. Follow me on that. How many of those years do you actually walk by that place? Because it still exists the entire time of Adam. You imagine there's still Eden, but you can't go in anymore. Guarded at the gate, the east gate. Guarded. And you think, how do you tell your children, we used to live in there, but we got kicked out. God said, I give you everything but one thing. Just stay away from the one thing. Don't eat the one thing. And I'm like, God, I did. We used to live in there. It was intimate. There was nothing between us. Everywhere we went, we were with them. That's just not where we're at anymore. What would that be like? Since then, God hasn't had that until now. But he goes, you're not going to approach me without sacrifice. It's the blood of another that's going to be the price that gets you to be with me. Of course, setting us up for Jesus. And as he's been walking us through item after item, it's the Ark of the Covenant, and then moving us from the Ark of the Covenant. And to get the idea, it's sort of on the inside out. It's the table that God will show his provision at, and the menorah, the lampstand. And by the way, we've had someone build us mock-ups of every one of the things to scale. Unbelievable. The tent in chapter 26, the courtyard in chapter 27, 28 and 29. Now he starts to, to, in, to engage the priests, a group of people he's going to set apart to, to play the role to prepare us and show us that AM and PM God as we see the morning and evening sacrifice. And in, in that morning and evening sacrifice, we've been led to start knowing about and be conscious of this morning and evening prayer time, this morning and evening quiet time that God is starting to establish in our lives. And we get to this chapter. And we get to this whole fundament of one of the most important parts that becomes one of the most mysterious parts of our quiet time with God and one of the most fundamental parts of our walk with Christ, and that is our prayer life. And the reason why it's so mysterious 
is because it's hard to make sense of it from a worldly perspective. Can you change God's mind? And if you can't change God's mind, why are you praying? I mean, and if you're praying, why do you pray for one person and they could be healed and not pray for, pray for another person and they don't get healed? And if I pray for this, am I praying? What am I praying? And, 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 and it's like prayer becomes such a really wacky thing. Now, when I first got saved, prayer was really Dear Santa, only I replaced the name. Let's be honest. I want, I want, my will be done. I really would like, can you give me, can you get me out of, can you change this, can you fix that person because they're driving me crazy. I mean, that's where it started. That was the beginning, right? And as we start to grow, we start to learn. The word in the Greek, and I'll give you one quick word here for prayer. It's the most fundamental word. It's the word plus yukamai. Could you say plus yukamai? Plus yukamai. Now, there's more than five of you. Come on, give it a try. I'm not making you chant something here. Plus yukamai. Okay, we're halfway there. Plus yukamai. Plus means towards. You means good. Kamai means intention or desire. Now listen, towards good desire. Praying without ceasing. How do we do that? I mean, do I have to get on my knees? Do I have to fold my hands? Do I have to close my eyes? If so, you'll never be able to drive because you should not drive with your hands folded, eyes closed, and on your knees. And you go, but officer, I was just praying without ceasing. How do I do that? But then I don't want to do vain repetitions. Jesus told me not to. Plus means towards. You means good. Chamai means intention, desire. Now, the first part is I'm first in the, in, in the beginning of my walk with the Lord. That means I want to cast God towards my good intentions, right? Come on, God, get with it. Here's my plan. I've already thought it out. I know you're busy running the universe. So I already figured out my life. Here you go. Come alongside and bless it. And God's like, your mind is so small. You know, back then when God doesn't answer your prayer because he didn't say yes, Remember those days? Right? I've been praying. I've been praying for this, and God has not answered my prayer. Could he have answered it with a no? Well, I'm not. No, he just hasn't answered it. I'm still single. I've been praying. I'm still single. Praying for God to answer my prayer. God's like, oh, no, no. Aren't you thankful the Holy Spirit prays because we don't even know how we should pray? And so he intercedes for us. I think there are times that the Holy Spirit has to cut us off in our, way to, our prayers on our way to the Father. So I'm going, all right, Father, this is what I really need. And the Holy Spirit just kind of jumps and goes, Dad, what he really means to say is, because he always prays in accordance with the will of God. And I love that about the Holy Spirit. And then we read, and we, and we can make a wonky thing out of it, because it says, in groans that can't be uttered. In other words, you can't hear what he's saying, and I understand why. You would get an argument with the Holy Spirit. So would I. I'd say, Lord, give me this. And the Holy Spirit says, what he means to say is this. And I'd be like, no, that isn't what I mean to say. This is what, you know. So he's like, the Holy Spirit's like, I'm not even going to let him hear what I'm saying. What he really needs is, he's lonely, but he needs you to fill that spot. He needs to feel important, and he doesn't let you do it. That person's irritating them, and they want that person sent to Siberia, but what he really needs is more patience. Yeah, that hurts, doesn't it? We pray, God, make their load lighter. And, God, and the Holy Spirit's going, God, give them a stronger back. But what real prayer is, is to cast yourself before God's good intentions. And that's very different. And that, by the way, if you're anything like me, does need to be done without ceasing. 
because I have a really good intention. And I was like, oh, i got to cast myself before it. And then I get selfish for a moment. Like, oh, whoa, whoa, i got to cast myself back. Have you heard what it says? To offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto the Lord. Literally, it's in the present continuous tense. In other words, to offer and keep offering. You go, how is that? Well, here's the problem with a living sacrifice, is it keeps crawling off the altar. That's the problem. So you have to keep getting back on. Now, here's the point of that. As we start going through this chapter, and it will go relatively quick, there are five basic points to this, as we'll see with this. The first thing is he wants a particular item built for this purpose in the tabernacle that he hasn't given us up till now. All the other pieces of the furniture in the tent have already been built. We've looked at them all. The only one that's left is this one, but first he wanted to establish a priesthood first. And then once he established the priesthood, he had something like this to be made. Now this is what it says. Look at this now. But our first part, verses 1 to 10, is the actual piece of furniture. You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. Everything so far, other than the lampstand, has been made of acacia wood. What has the lampstand been made of? The lampstand. Oh, oh I, feel, I feel like I failed you all. Gold. Thank you, someone. Thank you. Yes, pure gold. It's the one thing made of pure gold. Lampstand. Now, everything else has been wood covered in gold so far that we've seen on the inside except for the mercy seat, which also is of pure, thank you, all right, of gold. A cubit shall be its length, a cubit shall be its width, it shall be square. Two cubits shall be its height, so twice as tall as it is wide. Cubit again, the distance between here and here, so that's the distance this way, that's the distance that way, and then it's twice this on the way up. Now, interesting both altars we have, we have the altar outside, the altar of burnt sacrifice, and we have this altar are both square from the top. Now, none of the items other than that primarily are going to be, and, and, and except for the breast pouch that the priest wears. And I think that's interesting. And the, and the reason is, is because that when God starts, I, I saw I do this, this is one of those things I go, hmm, square, is anything else square in Scripture? And I kind of look and think Jerusalem isn't really square. Well, wait a minute. And then I get to Revelation 21. As I get to Revelation 21, and I start to say, well, wait a minute. When God sends down the new Jerusalem in chapter 21, verse 16, the new Jerusalem is square. It's the place, by the way, where God actually gets to live with his people. He gets what he wants. I think that's interesting. And I just wonder if the two places that God, from God's perspective, where he's looking, can remind him of that. Ah, don't worry, that day is coming. The place where prayer and surrender is happening. Surrender at the other altar and prayer with this one is. God's like, yeah, there'll be a day when we'll be able to do that every day. Just walk together and talk. Well, for what it's worth, it says there are four horns. They're all made of one piece. They're covered in gold. That's verse 3. And it says on that there's a molding. That molding, by the way, the word there is the word zer. And zer means crown in Hebrew. These little things on the sides, these little cuties, my horns falling, are one piece. And as they are one piece, it looks like a crown when it sits with the molding. That's the whole point of it. God wants us to look at this thing and see a crown on it. Because there is something for which all of our prayers are going to be carried upon. It will not be some guy behind a little box for which you will kneel before. There is only one mediator between man and God. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. That's what Scripture says. Anyone else you go to is a dead end. Have you ever, now, we don't have public, well, all we have is public transportation in our family, so we have no car, that kind of thing. 
And so if, well, I do a lot of walking, and I actually really do enjoy walking. In the walking that I get to do, sometimes you're walking and you kind of know you have to walk from here to someplace over there. And I did this as of recent with one of the guys in our fellowship. And so we started walking, and, I, and it was like there's one road that's going to get you from here to the place we need to get. Everything else is a cul-de-sac. And it just reminded me of that. We walked down this, and you know, you can't tell at first, and you're kind of walking like these are nice houses, and you're like, oh, would you believe it? So you turn around and go back. You walk to the next one. Would you believe it? And you come back. You finally get to the street that'll get you to, this, to, the, um, to the underground station. And I'm like, you know, that is really the difference. No matter who you're going to go to. And it doesn't matter. And I'm just going to flat out say it. It doesn't matter whether it's Buddha or Mohammed or whoever. I'm not to pick on any of them. They're all the same. They're all cul-de-sacs. They may be lovely cul-de-sacs if you want to drive through them for the moment, but they're not the one that's going to get you to the Father. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except by me. That's That's just the simple truth of it. Here it says that there's to be one place, one piece, and this is to be with one crown. Verse 4, it says there's two gold rings on one side, two gold rings on the other, because it's to be carried, because this is going to be something that's going to go with you. Verse 6 says it's to be placed in a place so that in the end of it all, where the mercy seat is, this is going to rise so that ultimately God is going to meet with them there. And Aaron shall burn sweet incense on it every morning and every night. Now, we already know the every morning and every night from the last chapter, if you remember. There was a morning sacrifice in the morning, which is an appropriate time for a morning sacrifice, and an evening sacrifice in the... Yes. Listen to Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be set before you as incense, and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Listen, the psalmist understood this. That there was this point... And understand, God's good with word pictures. Here's the idea... That there was this curtain, and the curtain would be here. You get to be in the Holy of Holies for the second. And the priest would come, and there were two pieces that would be brought. There's the incense we'll see at the end of this, and there are coals, because you really can't have incense. It doesn't do much without being on fire. And that, the coals would be taken from the altar of sacrifice back outside. So what would happen is, one guy would come with this big bowl, and as he would come with a bowl, he would take this and it would be filled with incense. And the bowl would be about the size of a dog bowl, to give you an idea. It's kind of a big thing, but he would walk around with this thing, and as he did, we would come and he would go to one person from the priest, and they would fill it with the incense. And as he would fill it with the incense, another guy would come, and he'd take a couple of these tongs, and as he would take these tongs, kind of like you would use for barbecue, and he would grab a couple coals from the fire there at the altar of sacrifice, and the two really don't ignite yet, but when the two come and he comes into this place, he has them now, and they get put into here, and he walks in, and he walks in kind of like one of those jets where it kind of leaves that stream behind him, and he walks into this enclosed tent, and he lays this thing before God. He raises his hands, and he begins to pray. Now, I'd like you to consider the image of this. And I was going to light incense, but I thought for your sake I wouldn't because I didn't want you all walking out of here smiling like hippies because we could get incense. We're in Camden. But um, they're like, wow, you come back and your mom's like, where have you been? You're like, mom, I've been at church. And they're like, sure you have. Okay. But get the image. Your hands are raised like this. Your face is lifted. And all you have is this giant veil. As there's this giant veil before you, you know on the other side of this veil, God dwells. That's kind of cool and mysterious at the same time. Your hands are raised. You're like, God, I just want to pray to you right now. And as this is happening, this particular unique smell that is only this 
And we read by the end of it all, you can't make this to smell anywhere but in here. He's going to come in here, and it comes and it starts to rise. And as it rises, it gets to the roof, to the top of the tent, and it starts to fill the tent. As it starts to fill the tent, it looks like a pillar. And as it looks like a pillar, which that should be fairly familiar, we've been following one since we left Egypt. And as it's the case, then it starts to come to the top. As it comes to the top, it starts to descend until the whole room is kind of filled in the scent. Do you get that? Which is what we're going to see when God actually comes down to inaugurate the, ta- the, the tent in the first place. He's going to come down just like that. And here he is. His hands are raised and he's praying. And the scent comes and it's beautiful. Now, be honest with you. Is there anyone in the room other than me that ha- there's a scent that really doesn't smell very good, but because it's associated with something, it doesn't smell so bad to you? Does that make any sense? There's a specific smell of rotted garbage that actually smells like a part of St. Louis to me because it's where my grandmother lived. And as much as the rotted garbage smell doesn't smell so great, because it reminds me of this time where I was with my grandmother, actually I could crave the smell, as weird as it is. Does that make any sense? I have friends that are from Russia, and they love the smell of rotted fish. I, I, I don't. But they're like, oh, I'm like, oh, oh. You want to come to my house? No, actually, come, let's go out to eat. But it's like these, there's certain smells. And God built your nose this way. It's strange. But there's like no other thing that has this, own, this beautiful connection where you can sort of smell something. And at first you're like, wow, I feel like it's just the smell of that's putting me in a good mood. And goes, oh, yeah, I remember where that smell came from. There is a smell of honeysuckle. I don't know if you're familiar with honeysuckle. It's a particular um, sort of a vine that grows, and it grows pretty voraciously but it grows off the northern sea of Galilee. And there's one of the places we go to in Galilee, north of Tiberias, really, really close, by the way, to Capernaum, where Jesus started to call his disciples. And we stay there when we go on our trips. And when you do, the wind blows off of the Sea of Galilee, and it blows right onto the honeysuckle and into your room. And that smell is just, it's unique and it's beautiful, and that's the one place I know it. I'm like, oh, God, this is beautiful. There's a specific smell of the collection of different flowers in our backyard, to be honest, in our garden. And when the wind blows up that, I can open up my windows. I mean, it could be freezing outside. Pray for my wife. I love it. And I can smell that, and I can sit there, and I can hear the birds singing outside. And that smell, if I were to smell that smell anywhere, I would just go, ah, because that's all it would remind me of. This smell is unique to this, but I want you to see what happens when when this guy is praying. You see, when he's praying, he's lifting this up, and God's giving him this picture, right? This whole thing rising before him. May it rise before you like incense. And I get the idea of this. And I look at this, and I say, wow. But when I walk out of this room, I'm going to be smelling like it. And I walk out of this room, and all of a sudden, Marcy goes, you've been praying, haven't you? Isn't that weird? And people are like, and you're like I, I smell it on you. I'm like, yeah, how'd you know? I, I don't even know how I know. I just can, I can smell it on you. Look, at, there's a danger in this fact of thinking that our prayer is some sort of service to God versus this experience of being intimate with Him. Because there's something about a real, genuine prayer life that, to be honest, cannot be replaced with anything. Now, now in this beautiful place where this happens, and we come smelling like it, God is intended for us to have a vibrant prayer life. And in that vibrant prayer life, you'd say, well, what would I pray for? Can I see the rest of the chapter really, in essence, kind of gives us an idea of how to develop a healthy prayer life? 
Take a look at it with me. By the way, in verse 7, to wrap up this section, it says, Aaron shall burn sweet incense on it. Every morning when he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it. I do think this is really cool because in this, um, I get the idea that this is something he's genuinely tending to twice a day where he's really... And understand, this isn't a zip-in, zip-out thing. This is, I mean, I want to be here until I... Listen, listen, listen. I want to be here until I walk out smelling like that incense. You get it? I don't want to be like, okay, here's my incense. Cool, because I have to walk out with the censer. So when am I walking out with the censer? Well, when it's burned out. You get it? When it's run its course. I don't want to walk in and go, all right, I think we're done. I mean, because in the end of it all, what I really want is I want this, I want to be, I want to be engulfed in this. Now, the, by the time of David, there were so many priests that he broke them up into 24 sections, 24 groups, each one from a, from a forefather in the day. One of them was Abiyah. There were several others as well. Interesting that there was a specific, and one of the events is that particular group then has to come to the temple to tend to it for a half a month, each one. And then they just sort of draw straws to see who's going to go in and get the privilege of doing this. There was one guy we specifically know, and I know this, by the time that this guy is there, it has been a zip-in, zip-out thing. The guy's name is Zacharias. You will know him as being the dad of John the Baptist. If you remember, it says, the lot came because he was of the family of Bia, so he was, his family was there to tend the Jew straws, and it's this guy, and God had done this. He's been picking this guy out for a while. And as it's the case, this guy comes in, and it says he comes in, he lights his incense, he goes to pray, and God starts to have a conversation with him, right? Of which, by the way, he's a, he's a problem. He's sort of a crisis in faith. It's interesting because while this is happening, what we read is the people outside are curious because he's been in there so long. That tells me something. That by that point, this was a get in, do your, do your duty, and come out. Instead of get in, get covered into this thing, and then walk out. And by the time he comes out, he can't even speak. And by the way, if you read the conversation, it doesn't appear to be a very long conversation at all, unless there's an awful lot of thought before he speaks, which doesn't appear to be the case according to what he says. It appears to me that he kind of, you know, the angel's like, look at, you know, this is the deal, this is what I have for you. And he's like, oh, wait a minute, how in the world can that be? He's like, your wife's going to have a, a baby. And he's like, are you serious? Come on, let's be honest. She's, a, she's an old gal by now. We've heard that conversation before. God's like, well, let me give you a sign. You ain't speaking until this happens. And you're going to call him John, which means grace. So here's the situation. At morning and at night, there are these times. And I just say, have a prayer life that when you walk out of the prayer closet, you're smelling like the incense you lit when you started. That's the point of it. I'm not walking out until this prayer becomes part of me. Not just something I'm like, oh, God, do this, do this, do this, do this. But with that in mind, it's most holy. It's interesting in verse 9 and 10. Did you notice, by the way, that every once a year you're actually going to make some kind of atonement for it? Why would you make atonement for something that's most holy like this? Can I just say, can I just suggest that once a year get away and ask the Lord, is my prayer life really serious anymore? 
Because you can get to this point where you're just kind of tossing up these little giggle fest things. And it's sort of like it's a drive through It's like, hello, this is God. Can I take your order? It's like, yeah, I'd like forgiveness and a side order of blessing today, please. And could you encourage me and, and make people nice to me today? Please pull forward and say in Jesus' name. You know, I mean, that's like kind of our prayer life. You know, and it's like, and it's like once a year, it's like once a year, you're going to come over with blood. And go, I want to be, re- I want to be reminded. I want to be reminded. I want to be reminded that once a year, that blood had to be shed to get me to the place where I could even do this. This didn't come without sacrifice. The fact that I could even pray here is because blood was shed. And I'm praying, and as I'm, and as I'm. Walking this thing with blood, there's a part of me that thinks, but are the prayers that I offer deserving of this? Are they in any way a reflection of this kind of sacrifice? Or are they nonchalant, cavalier, uncaring? Like I'm approaching someone who goes, hey, do something for me. Uh, to be honest, I think I need to be more than once a year, but at least once a year, I think we all need to get away and go, all right, God, really, is my prayer anything deserving of the sacrifice you gave just so that I could pray to you at all? And that's just our first verses. So here I am, I'm seeking to go, okay, God, give me a real prayer life. He goes, well, let me give you a few things. My, my challenge today as we walk out of here soon is that you will actually have a whole new take on a whole vibrant prayer life. A vibrant one. It's interesting, the first thing he goes after. The first thing, by the way, and we'll see it right here, um, are in verses 11 to 16. Second will be 12 to, or 17 to 21. Third, 21, uh, or 22 to 33. And then the last will be the incense in 34 to 38. Look at what it says. Verse 11, The Lord spoke to Moses and said, When you take a census, everyone 20 years old and over, they're going to need to give a ransom for themselves. Now, interesting, because you start to go, wait a minute, how does a guy ransom his own life? Obviously, a half a shekel isn't going to be that much. That's going to be part of this, by the way. Uh, um, What we're looking at, really, in essence, is about five and three-quarter grams is what we're looking at. Uh, So we're not looking at a tremendous amount, um, a fifth of an ounce. Uh, Chances are it's going to be silver, because everything that's paid in that sense is silver. And we could really compare it to, to, to today. And I think it's roughly... About 20 pence is a shekel today. Uh, NIS, a new Israeli shekel, is about worth 20 pence today. Give you an idea what you're looking at. That's a shekel versus a half a shekel. You're not paying them out. It isn't like what you're paying is a whole lot of money. That's not the point of it. The point is, do you kind of recognize that you've been bought? You've been bought by God. That's the point of it. And can I just say that as I start to look at my own thing here, and I start to say, God, how does this develop my own prayer life? Because he says, this is about a ransom. Notice that verse in 12. In Psalm 49, verse 7, it says that no one can actually pay for his brother. You can't give to God a ransom for him. In Isaiah 51, God speaks about the ransomed of the Lord. Verse 11. But then I can't help but think of Matthew 20, verse 28, where it says that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Same in Mark 10:45. In 1 Timothy 2.6, it says, by the way, that Jesus gave himself to be a ransom for all. And I start to put these things together, and I go, all right, Lord, I want a fresh, vibrant prayer life. And the first thing that stands out to me is, okay, well, where are you at with a heart to see people ransomed? 
Do you genuinely have a broken heart for the unransomed at this point? And what about yourself? Do you remember what it's like to be so gloriously forgiven that you've been ransomed by the one who paid it all? And I go, you know, that's a great place to start. Because I know that I wasn't redeemed with corruptible things. I know I wasn't redeemed with silver or gold. My aimless conduct received by the traditions of my fathers, but I was redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish and without spot. This is First Peter 1. Can I just say that today, as we start to try to develop a healthy prayer life, part of it, may it be, the blessing of our own ransom and a heart to see others so. I think it's a really great place to start. Not like what we're doing is reading off God's list, but here's the crazy part, and this is one of the mysteries to me of prayer, is if I pray anything according to God's will, I know I have it, but I know it's God's will that none would perish. So that part I don't get. But I do know this. I know that I'm doing God's will by praying. I know that I'm doing God's will by saying, God, use me to change lives, to affect them. Interesting, where does this ransom money go? Well, according to verses 15 and 16, by the way, 15 tells us that everybody needs the same ransom. Did you notice that? doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. Everybody has the same. But in verse 16, it says that the atonement money is given then and appointed for the service of the tabernacle of meeting. In other words, it's for the upkeep of the service. Now, you're probably aware of this, and this is one of the very few moments where I'll ever speak on this here because I only do when it comes into Scripture. But the bottom line is everything costs money. That should be a no-brainer. And with that in mind, God made every person 20 years older and older responsible. It became ultimately a temple tax, which we're aware of that they gave every year. But in, you, know, you have to be aware that everything, I mean, we as a fellowship, we pay rent. You're probably aware of that. That kind of happens here. There are things that need to be bought, things that need to be replaced, things get broken here. Those things need to happen. Where does that money come from? Well, you can decide that on your own. Now, understand, we, don't, we never take a collection here, nor ever will we. Because in the end of it all, it's never about that. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. But in the end of it all, I know this, that all of your money should be the Lord's. That doesn't mean any of it has to come here. But let the Lord guide where it should be spent. I know this. He's certainly not blessed if you give some here and spend the rest of it on your sins. That I'm sure of. You're not paying indulgences here, nor will you ever. But the whole idea of this is the Lord says, you guys should know that everything needs to be kept up. People need to be taken care of. That's the way this works. So we take care of them. God takes care of his people. Scripture says those who live by the gospel should live by the gospel. Those who preach the gospel should live by it. That's what God says. Wouldn't it be great if we could actually ultimately sponsor a handful of people that we know all they want to do is preach the gospel? Wouldn't it be great to get them on the streets all day? If that's what you knew they were going to do. I would love that. By the way, one thing is, is that the church is supposed to be taking care of its widows. Are you aware of that? I mean, that's one thing that's supposed to happen. When gals get older and they commit themselves simply to praying and they've lived the kind of life that's exemplary, so bringing them into a place where they could be an example to others is a healthy thing, God says, those women the church should be sponsoring. Wouldn't that be awesome? How many churches do you know can do that? Now, I would rather have a dumpy building, to be honest, and be able to take care of people. I'd rather have a great building that can take care of people as well. But I mean, our priority needs to be people. That's the point of it. But here's the first area of our, of our four here is in regards to this. So in other words, one of the things, and might I just say 1B, one is, of course, the issue of ransom. 1B is, is to pray for the upkeep of the church. We wouldn't mind you praying for us. You know, pray that God continue to, to bless and to, and to fortify that everything that's done, every decision's made, every cent that's spent, every pent that's spent, is going to be spent in a way that the Father would be thankful for. Moving on, verse 17. I'm off my soapbox. 
17 then through 21. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Now I want you to make a laver of bronze. To this day, many languages. The word laver or lave means to wash. It means it's of bronze, which is symbolic, by the way, of, of um, judgment. And it's there for washing. It says that, by the way, interesting, verse 18, it says you put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, which means that you go and you give your sacrifice, you meet this thing on your way into the tent. Interesting. So the sacrifice has to be made first. The blood has to be shed. You have to be responsible and make claim to that blood. But somewhere in between that and that place of intimacy is this. Is this, is this labor, this place where the washing is. And it is so important to God that twice in these four, five, six verses, He says, you better do this or I'll kill you. Uh, that's pretty serious. I mean, anytime God says that, you better take it seriously. If you're a priest, He doesn't want you doing this with dirty feet and hands. Why in the world's the big deal? I mean, if you're going to go and you're going to sacrifice an animal, it's dead anyways. Your hands are dirty. What's the big deal? You're going to go in. You're going to be alone in the tabernacle. What's the big deal? Could I just dare say, there's a place where God says, these are the two things that engage the world the most. And this is where you're going to take the world in on. You're going to grab it. And let's face it, some of you rode public transportation with us today. That's on the bus. That's on the, on the train or whatever. And some guy goes, <laughs> and then puts their hand on the rail. You didn't see that. You just came later and went, oh, that's wet. Oh, no. You know? And, and it's like, you kind of know. And then someone's going to come and they're going to like, brother, sister. And you're like, hey. Oh, nice. Right? Oh, I like your hair. Where did that moose come from? You know, and all this, it's like, and you just kind of, it's, it's sick. It's wrong. Well, you kind of get the idea from a germ perspective, and that will give you the EBGBs. But what about from a perspective of the system of the world? You've been walking around. You don't have to, like, you don't have to put on headphones that are full of ungodly things. It's going to assault your eyes when you walk down the street. Rue's like, we're sitting on a bus. She's like, look, a naked woman. I'm like, I'm not looking. She goes, well, it's on a poster. I'm like, it doesn't matter. She's like, wow, there's another naked person. Now, I mean, ultimately, it's like they're somewhat whatever. But you get the idea. It's like, look at what they have on there. And here's somebody that's, oh, there, and then there's those dead people, right? They're like, uh, next time, look for the bus on your... And, and there's like all of these pictures, and Rue just loves to read. I'm like, you shouldn't be looking at those pictures. How do you tell a 10-year-old not to look at everything that's on a bus? But you realize no matter where you walk, your value system, your faith, your walk with Christ, those things are going to be insulted. And you come to a place like this, and we come here as if we think that this is the place where, oh, this is the place where I'm going to get cleansed. But can I say that God's Word is the place that cleanses you first? Scripture tells us that well, husbands are to wash their wives in the water of the Word. That's Ephesians 5. It tells us that Jesus said, you are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you, John 15, 3. And understand in that God has this intent for, our, for his word to really affect us in such a way. Because otherwise, you ever have those days you, you saw something, you're like, can't unsee that. Or you heard something, I can't unhear that. And you feel, just the party just feels dirty. And you didn't volunteer to look. You didn't volunteer to listen. But you overheard or you oversaw and you went, oh, man. God's like, get back in my word. If you really think that the only place where you're going to get clean is at church, what does that make me? That's a big responsibility for me as a person who wants to be clean too. Beloved, can I just say, as we're in the word, God speaks to us and he starts to clean our thinking out. God says, man, you really want this. You don't want to die over these things. And I find this interesting 
Because this is the place in between where the blood that is shed in that place of intimacy, it's like now that you've claimed Christ, let me wash you over and over and over and over again. In my quiet time, as I'm in prayer, I open up the word and I'm like, Lord, just speak to me. I never have to go, is this, is this your word, God, as I'm reading? When he tells me to forgive someone, when he tells me to let go of something that I shouldn't hold on to because it's not important in his economy, and I'm looking going, wow, and that's the case for me, and I've been holding on to that thing, and his Holy Spirit convicts me and says, whoa, 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 that's kind of a filthy thing. Do you mind if I remove that? And I'm like, yeah, please. He's washing. And then I come into a place like this, and I'm so ready to praise because I, I, mean, I want to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, right? Not I want to enter his gates with with filth and his courts with, oh, I hope I, this is going to be okay and this better not be long. <clears throat> Maybe by the third song I'll start singing. What if we entered in here ready to praise God together? The roof is going to rattle on a place like this. And then we go from that to anointing oil, verse 22. So my first thing, and can I just put it in sort of simple terms? My first thing as I look at that is I look at, I just, I pray in regards to the area of ransom. And the second, I pray for purity. And the third then, starting in verse 22 then, and taking me through verse 33, is this anointing oil. And he says, look it, I've got some specific recipe. There's cinnamon, there's cane, there's cassia, which is sort of a Chinese cinnamon, by the way, to some they call it that, and olive oil. And I want you to mix this stuff together and beat it fine. And this stuff is, this is unique. I don't want this used for anything else. So it's got a unique smell to it. It's got a unique use to it. But this particular thing is to be done. Listen, listen, listen. This consecrates things. Man, when you splash this on something, you're consecrating it. And that is the tabernacle you're going to do it with. You're going to do it with the ark. You're going to do it with the table and its tools. You're going to do it with the lampstand and its tools. You're going to do it with the altar and its tools and the laver and its space. Space. The thing that holds it up. Well, wait a minute. Listen. The tabernacle where we all want to get together. I'm like, God, consecrate that. This is part of my prayer now. It really is as I look at the idea of what God does through his Holy Spirit in anointing, and I look and I realize, this is clarity. As I prayed for purity through his word, I pray for clarity in regards to my own calling. God, give me clarity the way I see things. Give me clarity the way that I see church when we assemble. That I don't look at success as a whole lot of people coming. I look at success as people encountering God and us wanting to be like Jesus. And I look at the ark where I view my priorities as being intimate with you the most important thing, Lord. And I look at the table where God provides. That's the testimony of God's provision, right? That's the table of showbread. But it's not, listen, listen, listen. It's not just the table. It's the tools that I want to make sure I see right too, that I have clarity on. You see, I understand, all right, God, I want to see you as my provider. And that alone I need some, some help with, all right? But <clears throat> and then God uses tools. And all of a sudden what we see is somebody comes and God invigorates them and, and he gives them an unction and says, you know what, we want to come alongside and help in this area. Or this thing has become an avenue for, for some form of blessing. And I don't want to look at that as the end. Does that make sense? I mean, it needs money. This is hypothetical. And all of a sudden, you know, someone like Bruno gets lit up and he goes, you know, I just think that the Lord told me to give you this money. And all of a sudden she's like, thank you, Lord, for Bruno. And then she starts, the next day she needs more and she thinks, I need to call Bruno. And God's like, no, wait a minute. I want you, in my anointing, I want you to start to clarify how I consecrate things because he's just a tool. He's just a tool. And I want to make sure that your view is right on these things. And let me ask you, what's your view of church? Do you come in as a consumer? 
Do you come in and say, you know what, I just came in to be blessed. I hear the word. I want to sing a little bit. I want to get out of here without anybody trying to mess with my business. No one crawls in my grill here. Or is it, you know what, this is the place where you should be able to try out your spiritual giftings more than any other. This should be the safest place. This should be the place where you might not get punched for actually trying to be a Christian. Think about it. But what if we all just came and said, Lord, I just want to come with my antennas up and I'm available, Lord, for whatever you want to do. And God will say, well, then go pray for that person. And you're like, no, Lord. God says, how do you put those two words together? Why don't you just try? God, please, sanctify my view of what church should be. What we're supposed to look like. What my priorities are supposed to look like. And how you provide. And the tools you use for it. And how you direct your lampstand. And the tools you'll use to direct me. Circumstances. Just flat out speaking to me. Financially. God has ways of steering us. You know that. And the altar. God, please don't let me see how you sacrificed as anything but what it was. A complete and absolute surrender. And don't mean like a sacrifice and think, oh, I have to sacrifice compared to you who gave it all. And the labor, how I view purity. I don't want to look at purity and think purity is just me being a little cleaner than the next person. I want to compare myself to Christ and say, all right, Lord, make me totally pure. Let my thinking be pure. and Let my intentions be pure. Let the way I look at you be pure. Let the way I look at the world be pure. Let the way I look at heaven be pure. Look at the way I look at the word be pure. God, please purify everything. And then as well, you're going to consecrate Aaron and his priests. It's like, Lord, also the way I see other people in, business, in, in the service of you. Hey, so they do it different. This guy over here, he's all about screaming and yelling and spinning around. And this guy over here, he likes to wear a robe and, and, he, and he likes to do his thing. I want to respect them because if they're leading people, if they're leading people to Jesus, praise God. And I want to view them purely. I'm like, God, clarify my calling so that I'm not trying to do what you haven't called me to, but that I can look with clarity at the church. I can look at clarity of all the things that you use in it. Does that make any sense? What would it be like if you prayed for your church? If you prayed for your calling, you're like, I don't know what my calling is. Well, if you ain't praying, how are you going to know? Lord, give me a clarity in my calling today. Because I see that that's something that they were doing here. And finally, our last area is this area in verse 34. Look at it with me. So the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices. And, and when was the last time any of you took any stacta? Any of you? you? guys have any stacta? Any of you guys have any stacta lying around? How about anecha? Any of you guys? Any of you have any spare anecha? Aren't you thankful? Because we won't, chances are we will not make an incense out of these things because we still don't know what they are. Um, true story. I mean, we tend, we tend to think that the first and the third of them, galbanum, which I think was something found in Middle Earth, right? Galbanum. Um, were things that they're like a gummy resin that they grind, that they dry up and they grind. I don't know. We're, no one's really sure. The middle one they think of those, by the way, they think it's actually the place where, in a snail where the snail's head sticks out. They, you grind that up. But no one's really sure. Poor snail if they're wrong. I mean, if, even if they're right. And, 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 like, and, and pure frankincense. That's the one we're sure on. And sweet spices, of these sweet spices, they shall be an equal amount of them, and they're going to be made as an incense. And remember, we're getting, no, notice how we got back to this. We kind of went from this to the ransom. And we went from the ransom then, if you kind of take a look at this with me, we went from the ransom then to the labor, and from the labor to the anointing oil, and, but we may not wind up back at the incense again. We kind of made a full trip around. And I get back to this, and this is what he says. We're going to take these items, 
Apparently, they know what they are. So we're going to make equal amounts of it. So it's a simple recipe. Whatever you put into this, you're going to put into this. We're going to put them all together. We're going to beat them up. Interesting, because they're not really going to release unless we really beat them. And then in that, it says that they're to be salted. Not assaulted, but salted, pure and holy. And I do like this. I'll tell you why. Because when God speaks about salt throughout Scripture, he speaks about something that hints of eternity. And I like that. I always want my prayers to resonate with the fact that I'm a citizen of heaven. Now, what if that was the one thing you took with you today in your prayer life? Lord, in my prayer life, does it always reflect the fact that I know that there's a world beyond this one where there's an eternity where everything really matters? Because if I actually look from that perspective, the only thing in this room that's going to matter isn't going to be a guitar or a piano or a sound system or a seat. It's going to be you because you're the only thing that I will either see or not see in heaven. Let's be honest. The only thing. And when that becomes the case, because it's salted, because this incense that's going to be lit here is going to be pure, but it's going to be salted, that my prayers are going to reflect the fact that I'm a creature of eternity. No longer just somebody that thinks that this world's everything that I've got. How much of your prayers reflect that? God, I have to have you. Got to get, pay this bill, do this thing, change that person, get this thing off of me or whatever. Hey, those things can be reality, but then it's like, Lord, how does this look from the side of eternity? Because that's a whole different perspective on this. This is a really horrible situation that I don't think I'm going to get past. And God's like, from eternity, you'll see that I'm using this to change you and prepare you for something even greater. We don't know what that is. It's amazing, even the craziest situations in your life, how God will use them in the sight of eternity if that's where our prayers go. Now look at So we mix all of these things together, and God says, notice in this, not only perfected, perfect in, in, uh, I'm sorry, in holy, pure and holy, but then it says you beat it very fine and then you set it before the, um, some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of the meeting where I'm going to meet with you. And I, I don't know if you've really thought of this lately, but, but please, please hear me. There is a God who is infinite, who is perfect, who is in every way pure, who is in every way innocent, who is in every way full of majesty. He is clothed and full of majesty. The entire universe resonates with his power. This is one whose voice splinters the cedars of Lebanon, whose spoke in the universe came to be, whose hand marked out the universe, his hand, just his hand, who holds the seas in the hollow of it, who wants to meet you. Is that a weird thought? Dirty, human, more than, tinier than a speck. And he wants to meet with you. And he goes, at this place, I want to meet with you. And here you are. What am I going to find you doing? I'm going to find you going, <sighs> could you imagine? This is the God of all eternity, and I'm still trying to drive through. All the angels of God are bowing before him, and I'm looking, and I'm kind of tossing something out to him like I'm throwing him a bone. God says, I would really like to meet with you. And I'd really like to meet with you in a place where you actually will appreciate it. So here I am. I'm lighting my incense. I'm saying, all right, Lord. First of all, thank you. Thank you for saving me because I don't deserve it, but thank you. And as you saved me, 
I just want to pray for others who right now have not experienced that salvation. And I want this prayer with a broken heart that I know is your heart to rise up before you and fill the room with the incense of surrender. But Lord, I also want to pray for my church because I know that if you start saving as I know you want to, they're going to need a place to fellowship. And I pray that our, our fellowship will be ready for it. That they will be fortified and set up and ready to disciple and establish and strengthen and see them raised up and invest in them even the way that I know you've invested in me. So God, I just want to pray right now for them. But as well, Lord, I also want to pray for the purity in my own heart. A purity, Lord, that matches with your word, that doesn't take the value system of the world or doesn't do things the way the world does because they've redefined everything, but your word makes clear and I want my heart and my mind to resonate with your word. Would you purify, God? Would you purify my heart? Would you purify my mind, God? And I don't want my prayers to be something that are stupid in your eyes or uncaring or indifferent or apathetic. God, I want them to mean something. I don't want to come in with a bowl full of toilet water and say, this is good, it's something I gave to you because I really haven't given you honest prayer. So I pray, Lord, that you would bring purity to my heart and mind even as I pray, even as I'm in your word. I pray you would bring clarity. By your anointing, bring clarity. Clarity to the way that you've called me and how you want to call me. Clarity to the way that I see church. Clarity to the way that I see your provision and I see intimacy. And I see, Lord, I, I see your, your priorities, God. And I see the way you guide and the tools you'll use for those things. Oh God, please, please, please bring clarity. And then in that clarity, bring intimacy. As I'm back here again, here with the incense rising, oh Lord God, please make us intimate. Not for my will, but your will to be done. Because Jesus, I know you died on a cross so I could be intimate with you. And you paid for all my sins there and you rose again. And as you rose again, God, you offer me a brand new life where you deserve to be the Lord of it. You've purchased me. You've ransomed me. You've been my ransom. So with that, Lord, as this room for the moment is filled with the majesty of your presence, God, I just pray right now that I could testify of it even in prayer. Please, God, make my prayer life a real life. One that isn't for others to see first and foremost, but rather for you to enjoy to rise before you like incense, to fill the room with the perfume of my surrender like the evening sacrifice. God, I pray it would rise before you like the smoke that you breathe and you go, that's a sweet-smelling sacrifice. So Lord, I pray right now for every person here, for those who make claim to you and for those who are still debating. I pray for every person here, Lord, that that you would transform us and recognize that there is an infinite, powerful God full of majesty that wants to meet with us and live with us and be with us and dwell in us. So, Lord, I pray for every Christian here. You today transform our prayer life as one, Lord, that praises you for your ransom and seeks the ransom of others that prays, Lord, 
for that purity in heart as you seek, Lord, to make us right with your word. And Lord, those that even right now, Lord, would, would seek, Lord, that, that clarity of, of how we view everything, Lord, and in that, the intimacy with you. And if you in this room right now have not accepted the gift of Jesus and you know you need to, I'd like the privilege of leading you in a simple prayer right now. The prayer just declares that we need God because we're sinners and he paid the price. And as he rose again because he died for our sins, that we want to let him be our Lord like he deserves to be. And here it is. God, I confess to you I am a sinner. And as a sinner I need you because I'm guilty before a perfect, pure, and holy God. But I believe you died for me on the cross, Jesus, to pay for my sins and rose again on the third day after dying be my resurrected Lord. So I say yes, Jesus, for you to be my ransom and for you to be my Lord. I surrender myself to you and I say, have me now. I'm yours. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.